Well, again, good evening. I invite you to take your copy of the Bible with me as we turn into the scriptures to the book of Jude together. Let's turn to the book of Jude as we continue our study in God's Word on these Sunday evenings that we gather together, where we are not gathering on the Lord's table evening, but the other ones that are sprinkled in between. We turn to the book of Jude and are continuing our study there. So I want you to join me in the text beginning in Jude in verse 3, and we'll read down through verse 7. Jude, of course, is only one chapter full of verses. So you're just so used to saying, turn with me to chapter so-and-so and verse so-and-so. So it's always awkward every time we begin. But turn with me and look and find your place in the scriptures to verse 3, where Jude begins writing, And he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The reason here is verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their first estate, their proper domain, but left their own abode, those angels he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, these are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Well, the grass withers, the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God lives and abides forever. Again, let's pause for one more word of prayer. Again, Father, we come before you this evening asking for your help. Lord, that we would exalt you as the mirror of Scripture exalts you and shows us your perfections. Lord, we pray that truly this would be a dynamic time for our church as we study your word. Father, I ask that you would wash and sanctify your church by the pure water of the Word of God here this evening. Would you grow our faith? Would you build up our understanding? Would you help us, Lord, to walk worthy of the calling with which you have called us to fulfill the good works that you have ordained and predestined for us? Would you help us to get a sense of the gravity of the text here this evening, to understand why Jude is calling the church to contend for the faith, and by extension, Lord, the calling that you've given to us even today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've seen in previous studies, as we've been introducing the book of Jude, Jude makes it clear at the opening of his epistle that his intent has changed, his tone has changed. He is alarmed by the presence of false teachers here in the church. And again, this is, if you just remember, it's a general epistle. This is not written to, say, the church at Colossae or the church at Ephesus, for example. But this is a general epistle written to the church for all time. 
But he desired to write to them about something else, something different. And it seems as if, as what we've seen in verses 2 and 3 already, that he desired to exalt in and revel in the glorious doctrines of salvation. Because it seems as if he gets as much of that in as he can there at the beginning of the book. But then he's led by the Spirit of God. He changes his tone. He changes the message. He's alarmed. And he's alarmed by the presence of false teachers in the church. He's alarmed by those false teachers, their doctrine. He's alarmed by their living. He's alarmed by their emphasis of false teaching, particularly in the sensuality of their teaching. They're promoting, if you will, sins of the flesh or libertinism. That's why he says in verse 3, I found it necessary. Literally, I was compressed, I was compelled to write to you exhorting that you earnestly contend for the faith. This language of the faith is what Jude is referring to, the same way that Paul refers to this entrustment that we have. We are stewards, Paul would say, of the mysteries of God. And Jude wants them to know, remember, you are stewards of the pure gospel. You are stewards of the pure faith that has been handed to you. And it's your job to pass it down to the next generation undiluted. Here Jude gives the warning that we are to guard our doctrine. And friends, this evening I would remind us that we are to guard our doctrine with all that we have, with all that we are. First Timothy 4.16, Paul reminds Timothy, he says, Timothy, take heed, notice the order here, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. That, that's a good word, isn't it? Timothy, guard your life. Watch your life. Stay in the Word. Stay under the microscope and the mirror, the examining Word of God. For in doing that, Timothy, you will spare your own heart, your own soul, and also those that you minister to. In other words, to use Jude's angle, you won't be an apostate, uh, Timothy, if you do this. As we'll see in just a moment, this is exactly what apostates don't do. Those who apostatize, this is what they don't do. They assent to the truth, they know the truth, they hear the truth, they're under the truth, but not to this degree and not to this level of the inward man. And so he tells them to guard this entrustment of the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Now sometimes this language can be confusing. I just want to make a distinction here. In general, faith is the, the operation of believing. We exercise faith. We talk about the gift of faith. Faith, by definition, is the operation of believing. But the faith, with the article the in front of the word, is the object of believing. And particularly here, it's talking about the whole counsel of God's word. Pure doctrine, the meat of the word, the milk of the word, doctrines that we cannot uh, filter or, or whittle away or change. For example, the infallibility of Scripture or sufficiency of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, just to, to give some examples. Uh, these are core doctrines that if we are to have fellowship, then we must agree on these core fundamentals of the faith. For example, the Lord's substitutionary, vicarious death on the cross for sinners and his literal physical resurrection in the future. These are examples of the, the faith that has been for all time handed down to the church. And so this is what Jude is calling upon for the church to contend for. And just by way of reminder, this language of contending in our world or in our current evangelical climate of winsomeness and concern about tone, 
it runs as counter contrast to that. In fact, we hear this biblical language, and oftentimes people hear it and they think, well, how can I be winsome and also contend? And so there's things that contend means, there's also things it doesn't mean. And if we think of contending for the faith as personality driven, we're going to miss it. But if we think of contending for the faith as faithfulness to the truth of Scripture, as we'll see tonight, we're on the right track. We're not the one in view here. And yet so many people, as they think about contending for the faith, they think of it in terms of a platform. In other words, it becomes personality-driven. And certainly we all have uh, personalities that God has gifted us with. But it's not about that. It's never about that. And that's one thing we have to remember. So if you're cringing as you think, well, how do I contend for the faith? I don't have a, that kind of fighting spirit. Oh, yes, you do. You just don't realize it, maybe. But if you're thinking, I don't have that kind of fighting spirit, maybe you're thinking about it in terms of what you think you've got to do in terms of your personality and in terms of just you. The problem is, is you are in the way. and You need to get that out of the way. There are all things we hold dear. I love my spouse, and uh, I would fight for her. I would lay down my life for her. I'd find out real quick what I'm committed to if that became in danger. Just giving you an obvious example, and you do too for those of you who have spouses. You may not realize you've got a contending spirit, but when it affects the things that you hold the dearest in your life, you will find that you will be able to rise to the occasion. And that's what Jude is doing. He's calling them to contend for the faith. Why? You'll notice verse 4. Again, certain men have come in, but the key emphasis here is unnoticed. And we have this language that long ago, they're proving that the fruit of their lives, that they were long ago marked out for this condemnation. These are ungodly men. As we saw last time, how do we know who these ungodly men are? They turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can say it like this, they pervert the gospel, they abuse the gospel of grace, distort the gospel of grace, pervert the gospel of grace, and they deny the only Lord Jesus. It's Jesus plus. It's Jesus and. And it's Jesus and so on and so forth. Basically, you can look at most modern cults, most of who John is teaching about in the Grace Equip class. Most of, most of what we see in the world today, it's a perversion of the pure gospel of grace. So I want us to note this morning, first of all, the condemnation that Jude tells us that belongs to apostates and apostasy. The condemnation that will be coming to them, and he explains this here in the text. Notice how he says in verse 4, those who were long ago marked out for this condemnation. What condemnation, Jude? What kind of judgment or condemnation is this? Well, the scriptures here tell us that there is a specific judgment for apostates. There's a specific judgment for apostasy or for false teachers, those who mess with the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaks boldly in language, maybe also that we've referenced a couple times in this study. In Sunday school, we mentioned it, but Paul, Paul uses strong language. In fact, some of the strongest language we see Paul using is when he talks about the perverting of the gospel in Galatians 1. Works righteousness, adding anything to the gospel of grace. In fact, Paul is stunned at how soon so many seemingly are coming away from the pure gospel there in Galatians chapter 1. And he uses strong language. Again, because he's riled up, not because he's the focus, but because of what is at stake. So for our purposes this evening, as we consider this condemnation, 
There is such a thing as apostasy, and we want to define our terms. We want to make sure we're very clear on what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. But before we look at the condemnation that is coming to them, we need to understand the meaning of apostasy. Probably the simplest definition of it is a, someone who is a counterfeit Christian. Someone who professes to be a Christian, but they're not a Christian, but yet it's more than that. That's probably the simplest definition, but this is not someone who's confused. Uh, this is not someone who truly is genuinely, sincerely, um, in one sense, deceived. In one sense, there's hope for them. In one sense, every time the church gathers or the gospel is shared, there is a reason we preach the way that we do. We desire to awaken the lost. We, we desire to point people to fruit and examine their lives and uh, examine their professions of faith. And, and that is one sense. But as we look here into the book of Jude, it, apostasy is more than that. Apostasy is literally being a counterfeit Christian who professes to be a Christian and knows they're a counterfeit Christian. They profess to be a Christian, and yet they turn away from the truth of Scripture. They turn away from what they have seen, what they have, quote, professed. Literally, apostasy means turning away from or falling away from. So a person who professes salvation but does not truly know Christ. John MacArthur says this in one of his books, uh, uh, beware of the pretenders. He says this, It is the abandoning of truth. It is not to be confused by mere indifference to the word, for it involves an intellectual acceptance of the scriptures. Neither is apostasy to be confused with error. It is not necessarily believing false doctrine. An apostate can acknowledge that certain doctrines are true, but fail to believe them in their heart. An apostate can acknowledge Christ without accepting him. Apostates have received, notice here, light but not life. They have known and accepted the written word, but they've never met Christ the living word. Apostasy is a deliberate rejection of the truth after it's known. Hence, it is the most damnable sin of all to come face to face with their need for Christ or with the truth and then to reject it. And that is why the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10, 29, of how much worse, excuse me, punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? So apostate is someone who knows the truth and stomps literally on the cross of Christ and deserves much punishment than others, you could say, who do not know as much. Could not have said it better myself. That's why I just quoted the text here of John MacArthur. Someone who knows of Christ, knows exactly the exact phrase, they have known and accepted the written word, but have never met Christ the living word. So it's an exposure to the truth, but not being born again. So to know the truth and to turn away from the truth. And so one thing we'll find in a survey of Scripture is that the Scriptures repeatedly warn us about this sin. It's one thing to know about Christ doctrinally, but they deny Him devotionally is a way of saying it. There is a form of a Christian life. There's an outer form, but there's no marrow in the blood, if you will. There's no life-giving source of regeneration or walking and newness of life. Maybe another common example that we give often here is when we worship God, we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And, and for many, the extent of their form of following Christ 
or being a disciple or a professor is simply they're at the right place at the right time doing all the right things. The problem is, is it goes no deeper than that. Just like, say, for example, Judas. So we see this condemnation that belongs to the apostates. And I want us to look at some examples in Scripture where there are very clear warnings that tell us that this is a possibility. And when we hear these warnings, when we see these warnings, we're not talking about losing salvation. I want to make sure we make that distinction. Apostasy is, is about the closest thing you can show from the outer man, from the eyes of flesh, of looking at someone. They look right, sound right, do right. But the problem is, is at some point over the course of their life, they are going to depart from the faith because it's just not real. It's not worth it. It just isn't. It's not, we saw this morning, the cause that, that Christ calls us to. Now, don't, don't think I'm departing from the faith as I kind of put down that. But unless you're truly saved, listen, why, why put up an act? You know, well, what is the point? And so someone who is an apostate will eventually depart at some point. They will turn their backs on Christ. And just in case you're wanting some examples, I mean, my goodness, just read the news. I mean, we live in a day and age where there's just example after example of performing artists, Christian singers, uh, authors, writers, pastors, who've just, they're, they're, they're deconstructing. They're no longer walking in the faith. And these are people who for years and decades have influenced other people's lives, led other people to Christ, quote unquote. Uh, written works and sources and songs and books that are to strengthen the church. And then all of a sudden, something happens, some type of trial, some type of crisis, or they're just exposed. And they say, you know what? I will not repent. I won't repent. I don't even believe that anyway. And I'm going to continue to live in the sin that I want to live in. And so in one sense, you could say this just by, as an aside. Usually sin is at the heart of an apostate in that they will not abandon their sin. And when the choice comes for their sin or Christ, they simply reveal themselves to be those who were truly never born again in the first place. They may, may have even thought they were saved, but they abandoned the truth. So let's look at some of these warnings. Let's lay a scriptural foundation. So, for example, Colossians 1, verse 21. Colossians 1, verse 21. And I would encourage you to, if you're able to, turn to these passages of scripture with me as we look at some of these. Colossians 1. In verse 21, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he says this. He writes to them, specifically, he says, And you, who once were alienated and the enemies of Christ in your mind by wicked works, you were once that, but yet now he has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, in Christ's sight. Now notice here. Verse 23 is the warning. Now, it sounds as if Paul is speaking out of two sides of his mouth, but Paul is being an excellent physician of the soul. And the problem is, is we're not good physicians of the souls today. People like me, we, we don't give these types of warnings often enough or remind people of these, these types of things. Here, Paul is an excellent physician of the soul. He says this, If you indeed continue in the faith, grounded, steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, or which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice that warning there, verse 23. If you are only above reproach, only if you remain steadfast in the faith. So that's the warning. 
So you say, wait a second, Legrand, help me to understand this. Well, there's often tension in the scripture. So like we, we understand that. We often point that out. You can have the genuine assurance of your salvation as you turn from your sins and you, have, you are bearing fruit and have experienced the power of the gospel in your life. But the ultimate fruit, as we mentioned this morning, that your profession was real and genuine at some past point in the past. For example, I was saved at the age of six. A man came up to me right after the service this morning and said, tell me about when you were saved. I said, absolutely. I was saved at the age of six. I just kind of gave him the, the quick story of my, my life story. He asked. I told him. But here's the thing. None of that is a hill of beans. It means nothing if I walk out that door tonight and say away with it. All I'm doing, God forbid, is proving that, that it was not genuine. So that's why we see the warning here. So, so the point is not that we can't have peace. Oh, absolutely we can have peace. We have the power of his spirit, the witness of his spirit. But ultimately, friends, you need to understand this. The Bible gives the warning. We'll see examples of actual apostasy in just a moment. The point is, is we continue in his preserving grace. That's not be, meant to be a hammer that, you, is, uh, that I beat over your head. But the encouragements and the admonitions to pursue Christ and to marinate in his word and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and to love him and to see his beauty and to see his yoke as something that is easy and light, that we are the slave and he is the master, that is life-giving. That is life-pursuing that we give our lives to. And as we do that, as we abide in Christ, as we bear the fruit of the Spirit, as the fruit of the Spirit, as the Holy Spirit shows us our sin and we deal with our sin and keep short accounts of our sin, if we continue in the faith, we have the assurance that He is with us, that we are His children. We bear the birthmarks that we are a child of God, as John describes in 1 John. Turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 31. We see one example here in Colossians 1 of a warning that is given, Colossians 1.21. Now John chapter 8, verse 31. In John 8, verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, and this is constantly a tension we see in the Gospels. Jesus is teaching, there are many who respond, but there are obviously those who have a superficial response. It's not saving. But in one sense, you don't know that at the first uh, sign of it, of the first response to the message. Notice what Jesus says. He says, verse, John 8, 31, when Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Again, this word abide means to continue, to remain in. We don't mean never missing your Bible reading plan. It's not talking, we're not talking about a checklist syndrome. We're just talking about you dwell in the Word. You're faithful to the Word. Yeah, there may be days or seasons where you get out of the rhythm or the norm. and We're not talking about any of that. But talk, we're talking about there is a desire, there's a hungering and a thirsting after righteousness, which Jesus describes in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So in one sense you could say, hey, listen, you may be faithful to church. You may sing the songs of Zion, but if you never pray, in the hidden place, or in the prayer closet. And if you never read God's word, and if you're never burdened about your sin, and if you never confess your sin, and there's no witness of the Holy Spirit within you, all you have is a form and a function, but it's denying, as Jude will later on say, the power thereof. They have a form of it, but they deny the gospel's power. And friends, we deny it. And you know what? It is so good, it is so healthy for us at times to say, wait a second, 
I'm in, a, I'm in a season of apathy. I'm in a season of discouragement and despair. I'm in, a, I'm in a dark night of the soul. Am I saved? One of the kindest things that God can do to us is to bring us back to Scripture as we examine ourselves and, and experience the witness of the Holy Spirit and look at our hearts and look at our lives and, and look into the mirror of God's Word and experience that transforming power and His grace as we call unto the Lord, as we confess our sins, and we experience a renewed peace and the power of His Spirit working in and through us. If you know, you know, right? And listen, there is no greater joy than those who have been apart from God, having a prodigal son moment, not to glorify sin, but you come back and taste of His kindness again. He welcomes you with open arms, and you say, God, help me to never abandon you again. Help me to never go through a season of sin again. Lord, help me to never get like this again. Help me to stay close in your truth and in your word. Help me to abide our word here in John 8, 31. One other example, go back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. And we're talking about batting a thousand. Not only is this text in Jude a difficult text, but Hebrews 6 may be one of the most difficult texts in regards to this subject. In fact, many people stay away from certain portions of God's word. And I would just encourage you, don't stay away from any portion of God's word. Run to the hard text. Ask the, the Holy Spirit to give light, to give illumination. I don't like it when I hear things like that. Well, I, I, I'm just not ever going to preach on that, or I'm just going to stay away from that because it's difficult. The Lord will help us. Everything is given us in His Word. He will, he will lead us into all truth. Hebrews 6 verse 1 is another warning. Many people will take this passage, this text, as to be a foundational text of saying, See, Exhibit A. Someone can profess faith in Christ and then lose their eternal salvation. And that's not what we see here. We see a warning. Notice in Hebrews 6 verse 1, Therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary, rudimentary principles of Christ, let us go on into maturity, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance." since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose, whose end it is to be burned." Here we see yet another, a third example of those who've been exposed to the transforming power of the glorious gospel of Christ. They've seen its power in other people's lives, and yet they walk away from it. Friends, just to put it bluntly, this is inexplicable. It happens, though, doesn't it? It is a gut punch when it happens. I can think of times in my life where I have 
this past Monday night, as I told y'all this morning, when I got that call from my dad, just someone that you could know getting murdered in the cause of Christ. That's one of those moments that will stay with you a while. You'll never forget that. I felt like I had literally been gut punched. And uh, it took a while, a good 24 hours to process that news. But I can think of other moments where I received the news. Have you heard about so-and-so? No, what are, you, what are you talking about? You haven't heard? No, no, I haven't heard. They're no longer in the faith. What? What? I just preached for him six months ago. What are you talking about? He's no longer in the faith. No, he's, he's completely left his family. He's abandoned everything. He didn't just abandon Christ. He, he's walked out the door on everything. Th- that is inexplicable, friends. And yet every single one of us, if we're honest, we've got that story. We've experienced it in our own families, in our own relationships, with children we've grown up with, with people we've been acquainted with. And by God's grace, may it never be us. No, we never, never be that person. I want you to look at one last warning that is very clear in Scripture. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. We see these examples all around us. This past week, I pulled out a book off my shelf of a book that I needed to study for this morning's sermon. And as I opened it up, I saw an inscription in the front cover, and it was written by a friend of mine that I went to college with, one of my very best friends. And it was just like a ton of bricks hitting me because I knew about this message this evening, the tone of it. But the book was for this morning, and that friend's no longer in the faith. Has abandoned everything he's ever known, left his family, his children, pursued an alternate lifestyle. It's true, and your mind goes back and you think about conversations and trips and times you serve the Lord with him, and you just say, What happened? It's inexplicable. Well, finally, look, notice the testimony of Scripture. We don't have to try to explain it. Here's the authority of Scripture, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy. This continues into such effect, he describes it here, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So to give maybe a basic example, how many of you guys or I say guys, I, I really meant that, like guys, like as a men. Um, but it's not to say women can't experience this too. Uh, how many of you, you've been at an iron, you've been ironing your clothes, and you sit the iron to the side, and, and you're, you're doing something, and your arm reaches out for the iron or whatever, and the tender part of your arm hits the side of that iron, and it takes a second for that heat to register. But when it does, it hurts. And it's tender. That's one of the softest parts, you know. It's, it's just real tender. And so there's, there will be a large pink or red whelp that will settle up there. And for days, it'll hurt and hurt and hurt. But then there's a point where that pain goes away, right? It just gets desensitized. It, it's like the nerve endings just get burned up for a second. And, and that healing process, the pain that once there, just, it's, it's almost solid, like scar tissue. That's just a basic, dumb example of what he's talking about happens to the consciences of those who depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience, not their, the tender part of their arm, but their consciences, their inner man seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, com- commanding to abstain from fruits which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, For every creature of God is good, 
And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Paul wants Timothy to know that in the latter days, such as today, don't be shaken, although it's hard. Just know, just like persecution as we saw this morning, when it happens, just know you've been forewarned. So here we see these examples in Scripture of warnings against apostasy. But then quickly, I want us to move as we think about this condemnation that is given here in our text to the explicit acknowledgement of apostasy in the Scriptures. It's not just a warning, it is a reality. Maybe the most famous example that we say often is 1 John 2.19, isn't it? In 1 John 2.19, where John is giving the hallmarks of those who truly know Christ, these are the children of God. Here's how you can know that you're the children of God. That's the whole aim of 1 John. John wants the church to know they're saved, and he wants them to know the hallmarks of salvation, and he wants them to know that their joy can be full. The Christian life can be an abundant thing. Your peace and your joy can be to the very max as you're rooted in Christ. And right in the middle of that dissertation in 1 John 2, 19, he says this, Then they went out from us, but they were not of us. Now notice, how do you know that, John? How can you say that? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So what you've got to understand is, is according to what John is saying is that at some point, as I said earlier, where there's a point where it's made known, where the, the apostate, is unveiled, where the mask is pulled off. You say, well, what is the difference in an apostate and someone who is self-deceived in sin? What is the difference between an apostate and a true believer who's in a season of sin? Here's the difference. There will be repentance. There will be a turning to Christ. There will be a running to Christ. There will be a brokenness over sin. That is the big divide that is here. An apostate has a conscience that is seared with hot iron. And if they have a blind spot or something they've not realized or something that they have forgotten about or whatever, and it's brought to them or they are exposed, there's no repentance. There's a complete abandoning of the truth. There is a choice that is made, like Joshua says to Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve, and that's exactly what they do. They make their choice. So, so if you're listening to me tonight and you're in a season of sin right now and you're saying, well, LeGrand, am, am I apostate? Well, I don't know. How you will know and how I will know is how you deal with your sin. Will you treasure your sin? Will you cling to your sin? Or you abandon your sin and run to Christ and ask him to save you, cleanse you, forgive you, depending on your understanding of him and the gospel. And we'd love to shepherd you through that, by the way. We love you. We pray for you. We're glad you're here. We want to help you work through that. Turn to Mark 4, verse 14. Again, a very clear acknowledgement that the Scripture teaches not that we can lose our salvation, but that apostasy is a legitimate thing. As John explicitly says, maybe the most succinct way, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So as you're turning to Mark 4, verse 14, to give a, a name to that example, maybe it would be Demas. Demas in the New Testament, remember where Paul says very quickly, it's like he doesn't want to dwell on it, but he says, Demas has forsaken us having loved this present age. That would be an instance of an apostate where it came true that the choice had to be made to continue in the gospel journey or he, sin became known or we don't know. But a choice had to be made and Demas made his choice. Demas was once right here with us, Paul said. 
Like you wouldn't have known Demas was Demas. The reason Demas is Demas, like we know Demas to be today, is that Demas is no longer of us. And I'm not trying to be wordplays, but I think you follow me there. There are certain names in Scripture that just to say the name is to know, right? And it's to identify them with something. And Demas is one of those. Demas is the guy that abandons the gospel. Demas is the guy that left. Demas is different than, say, John Mark, who was profitable again, again unto the ministry. There are examples of people who are weak or those who experience a season of sin, but they are truly saved or regenerate. And John Mark just couldn't continue in the journey. The difference between John Mark and Demas was that Demas loved this present age. He was overcome with this present age. That was not John Mark's problem. Do you have an example? Demas, Paul says, was once right here with us, sitting in the pew with us, singing the songs with us, serving with us, planting churches with us. But now Demas is no longer with us. He's out there fulfilling what John describes as they went out from us, but they're not of us. Now Mark chapter 4, verse 14, we see Jesus gives the parable of the soils. This is one of my favorite parables that Jesus gives because it's one of the most practical, not to say the other parables are not practical, but this literally affects us every time we open the Word of God. Every time you are exposed to God's Word, every time the Word of God is preached, the parable, the parable of the souls is at work. The sower sows the Word. Moms and dads, that's you every time you open the Word of God. Sunday school teachers, that's you. Every time you open the Word of God, everyone, that's you as you engage with God's Word. The sower sows the Word. Now, these are the ones by the wayside where the Word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and he takes away the Word that is sown in their hearts. Verse 16. These likewise are the ones sown onto the stony ground who, when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with gladness. And yet they have no root in themselves and so they only endure for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. I didn't sign up for this. Wait a second. What is this all about? Verse 18. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things begin to enter in and they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word. They accept it. They bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Here we see an example of apostasy in these examples of those who do not receive the word of God for, for whatever different reasons. They're exposed to the truth. And yet the cares, for example, one example is given, the concerns of this life come in. And it's just a greater concern. We don't have time for that stuff, preacher. We don't have time for whatever it is the Holy Spirit wants us to hear today. We've got bills to pay this week. Uh, we've got loved ones in the hospital. We've got life situations and concerns and cares. The, the Scripture describes it as simply the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. All of these Categories come in and they choke out the word of God. Brothers and sisters of Christ, are we not reminded again the importance to take heed in how we hear the words of Scripture? How important it is. One last example we'll turn to for this evening is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. 
Now, Peter has his own parallel passages in his epistles that line up very succinctly right here with Jude. He has much to say about the same topic. We see an example here in 2 Peter 2, verse 20. And this is what he says. He says, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Now notice the way Peter describes it. This is one of the most sobering lines in all of Scripture. He says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. It's very similar to Hebrews 6, isn't it? Be better not to know any of it than to know it and to turn away. Verse 22, But it has happened to them according to the proverb, A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So these examples of apostasy are those who hear the word and receive it, but it is a superficial receiving. And they depart from it and abandon the cause of Christ. Or maybe they were saved out of a life of sin in adulthood. They've already charted their journey and they were changed. And it seemed on the surface level that everything changed. Only then again to return again to the former lifestyle that they were saved from, but with almost a renewed passion, a renewed hardened heart. My goal is not to wear you out this evening, but I could give you example after example of just instances that I have witnessed growing up in the life of the church, and I'm sure you can too. I could think of, of an example right now of a missionary who our church worked with for many years, making missions trips or taking groups down to Mexico, where I grew up and as a teen was able to take part in it, and this guy was the point guy, had a beautiful family, and just God used him in unbelievable ways. And it's the, 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 the hardest part about it all is, to, is when you find out someone has completely abandoned the faith and returned again to a sordid former lifestyle to say, what was all that, right? Like, what, was the, what, what did we do? And how did God bless that? And is there any fruit from that? And here's the answer to all that. God is sovereign. And all glory be to Christ that he is. If you don't rest in the sovereignty of God, friends, I don't know how you sleep at night. I mean, it is a truly the pillow. It's not the hammer that we beat other people over the head with. It is the pillow that, that gives the saint sound sleep night after night. I remember as a teenager, I was actually went off to seminary at that point but when I found out about that. And I was just shaking to my core. And your mind goes back to trips and experiences and stories and ministry. And you put it all together. I know I've told the story about my own dad in his adulthood finding out that the evangelist who preached the gospel to him in his teen years when he was saved at 15 didn't find out to just a few years ago that that man left the faith. And that shook my dad up for a few days. He was trying to process that. And God, how sovereign is your grace that you could use someone like that to preach the pure, unadulterated word of God even though the vessel was unclean and save many to believe. All, all glory be to Christ. Friends, here, let's just conclude with this. God's ways are mysterious, and he can use anything. He can use a jackass, and he can use a sheep. He can use a shepherd boy, and he can use a king. He can use anyone, and he can use anything for his purposes. What is infallible here and what is sufficient here is not the servant or the herald or those who serve in the name of Christ. What is infallible is the pure word of God. 
So very quickly, number one, we see the condemnation that belongs to these apostates and those who are given to apostasy. And time does not allow us, but I want to just introduce this and we'll finish up the second point next time. But secondly, we see the condemnation that can be demonstrated from the past. So all we've seen so far is that it can happen. Here's what it is. Here's a definition of it. Here's, here's some explicit examples. But then Jude in our text in verses, going back to Jude verses 4, 5, and, uh, excuse me, 5, 6, and 7, Jude gives three categorical examples here that, that we will take the time to look at from the Scriptures. He talks about, apostate Israelites, when God would bring them out of Egypt, and which ones would actually make it to the promised land? What happened there? So he gives us the example of the apostates, apostate Israelites. And then secondly, he gives the example of the apostate angels. Those that were judged have been marked for this, reserved for this. What an interesting text. It's one of the hard, it's one of the hard nut texts to crack, but we will certainly approach it. Then he gives the example of the apostate Gentiles there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we'll look at that, we'll see that Sodom and Gomorrah were exposed to far more light than than we, we realize. As you look into the Old Testament, you see these examples of God bringing judgment upon surrounding nations. I would just point you to one witness, and it's the witness of Rahab. Remember what Rahab said to the spies when they came? She says, we have heard about your God. We have heard how he has delivered you from Egypt. We have heard how he parted the Red Sea. Here's the thing. The fame of God's name went before him. There's no way it couldn't. And these surrounding nations, instead of responding in rightful fear and bowing to the God of all the universe, as Paul describes, and they already have general revelation, but instead of responding in faith, as Rahab did, as an example for us, they are apostates. They have heard, they've seen, Yet their hearts are hardened, and yet their hearts are not only hardened, they pursue the worst, sordid, most deviant sins that can be committed on this earth. And for that reason, God does not wait till future judgment. God gives us the example of swift and immediate judgment. So friends, we're just, we're just going to look at, we're going to let the scripture speak for itself, but it's interesting to me, anytime I've ever touched on some of this in my limited ministry in the past, I will have conversations, and it's not so much with the older crowd, it's often with the younger crowd. And when I say younger crowd, I mean like 40 and under. That struggle with these texts of God's judgment, and I don't mock it. But again, we're just going to look at what God's word has to say, and we'll say with this, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And you just need to know this, in the future he will judge every man with eyes of fire, every person who's ever lived. So it is up to him whether he decides to bring that judgment in the here and now. He cannot the judge of all the earth do right. Or whether he decides to wait eons upon eons and millions upon millions of years, however he longs to tarry. That is up to him. But to quote Romans chapter 9, Who are you, O man, that would say, God, what are you doing? Or as Daniel chapter 4 verse 35, as we saw this morning, Who can look at God and say, what are you doing? Now we have those questions, but we must bow to Scripture. Make sure those questions don't extend beyond the authority and power of God's Word. May the Lord give us His grace to bow to the written, sufficient, authoritative power of the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And again, Lord, we we get the gravity of these texts. And we realize that we can rise to the occasion to contend for the truth when we realize that it is the truth that saves us that is being attacked. 
And so even as we saw this morning, to bring it all together, Lord, would you help us to be faithful to the truth, to love the truth. Lord, as your spirit regularly shows us and reminds us of our sin, where we, we are having conversations and we don't tell the whole truth, and your, your spirit reveals that to us. We have a decision to make. Choose our sin or choose the truth. God, help us to choose the truth. When your spirit shows us that our, our mental sins may be hidden from, from man, but they're not hidden from God. May we deal with our sins ruthlessly and, and deal with them, confess them, repent of them, and bow to the authority of Scripture. And on and on, the examples we could give. May we as the people of God, when the choice is brought before us to choose this day whom we will serve, Father, we choose Christ. And the reason we choose Christ is because Christ chose us. We love you because you first loved us. So, Father, keep us close to your side. We have the confidence that those of us who profess the name of Christ, that you'll never lose us. And Lord, as we press on and persevere in your grace, we're comforted in this knowledge. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we close singing.